once again to the Perimeter Church podcast. God gave Jonah a mission, again, and this time Jonah went. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Jonah into the depths of God's heart and ours with this sermon entitled Repentance, which covers Jonah chapter 3. For more information, to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Perimeter Church. Our scripture reading today is from Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This the word of the Lord. Thank you, McLean. Let's pray aloud together our prayer of illumination. Oh, make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip and conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen. And amen. We are in the third week of this series in Jonah that we've been in, and and, uh, we've seen Jonah so far run from the Lord in chapter 1. Uh, We've seen him in chapter two, uh, at the end of chapter one and into chapter two, be swallowed by a large fish and in the belly of this fish, um, repent-ish, kind of maybe halfway, half-heartedly, perhaps falsely, repent. Uh, We are now moving into the third chapter where Jonah has been spit up on dry land at the very end of chapter two, And now we're hitting reset. And we're beginning into this journey where Jonah actually obeys. And as we will see much more next week, um, we will see that he does so begrudgingly and again, half-heartedly. But we see him go. And when he goes to Nineveh, he preaches one of the worst sermons ever preached. It's a terrible sermon. Yet 40 days, or or Nineveh will be overturned. Like, wow, okay. It reminds me of um, the house, uh, as I leave the house, the the church that I passed right outside of 
my house on the way to this church every day has a marquee, a little digital marquee that not very big and really only big enough for one word. And the one word that has been on this church's marquee for as long as I've seen it is repent. Repent. Now you, you might hear that word and upon hearing it, even visualizing it on the church marquee, uh, you might have some immediate reaction. And, it, and the immediate reaction or feelings or thoughts that you have may not be positive. You might immediately think of anger-filled, hate-filled street preachers who are yelling, repent, turn or burn type thing. You might, even, you might even think of that word. And if you're really honest, you might say, you know, I've seen, heard that word for a long time. I, I know that churches talk about it a lot. I know it's a Christian thing, but I really don't know what that word means. What does it actually mean to repent? And so as we think about what we're looking at in Jonah chapter three, it's an important thing to define. It's an important thing to understand that repentance is, is a good thing, despite how it may have been used over the years and even centuries in a, in a way that would not be helpful, in a way that would actually be damaging to those listening. Repent is a biblical word. It's a good word. It's a word that Jesus used. It's a word that the apostles used. It's the word that the early church leaders used. It's a good word that in various ways, like we often do in human history, we take and we can abuse it and misuse it and construe it in, in ways that aren't helpful. But repentance at its core very simply means turning, to turn, to, to turn away from sin and turn toward God. It's a changing of mind and a changing of heart. This is how F.F. Bruce, a biblical commentator, this is how he defines it. He says, repentance, change of mind, involves, here's that word, a turning with contrition from sin to God. The repentant sinner is in the proper condition to accept the divine forgiveness. R repentance it's important to know this, repentance, to repent is, is more than an apology. It can involve an apology for sure, but it's more than that. It's not just saying, I'm sorry. It's, it may start there, but it moves from just uh, an act of contrition to an actual turning away from self. Similarly, it's not, it's not regret, although it may involve regret. It's not just being regretful. Really at the core, again, of repentance as a part of this turning is grief. There, there is a grief deep in the heart and in the mind that is, is grievous over the sin, but even more importantly, over the sin against God. There's a godly sorrow involved in repentance a godly grief. This is how 2 Corinthians 7.10 says it very well for us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, listen to this, without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So there's actually a way to be in grief, to be sad, to be sorrowful, to be apologetic, but it be very worldly. And here's how, here's why. 
When we are totally focused on ourselves, we are looking in and we have turned in on ourselves. That's when it's worldly grief. That's when it's not repentance. When we live in this posture of self-condemnation, of self-regret, woe is me that never turns us out but only leads us further in to self-hatred. That's not repentance, that's self-loathing. That's wallowing, it's not biblical repentance. Biblical repentance, what God has called us to is again, watch it, not turning in, but a turning out. Turning out, not, yes, we see our sin, but then we turn out from looking within to see God, to turn to him and turn away from our sin. It's active, repentance is active to turn to God and away from sin. So perhaps now having heard, at least briefly, a a, a clear, hopefully, conceptual understanding of repentance, your mind might, might go back to that marquee on that church where it just says, repent. And if you're like me, you might just kind of chuckle to yourself because you think, how effective of a strategy is that? Who would be driving by and see that word and immediately understand what it means and actually do it and actually repent? And that was my posture for I don't know how many days driving past there. Oh, goodness. I'm sure people are just pulling off the road repenting every time they pass, right? That was my my pride. That was my self-righteousness. That was my judgment until I read Jonah 3 again. And I remembered that God gave a message to Jonah that didn't look like or doesn't look like to me like a very good gospel presentation. It's it's the worst sermon ever preached, perhaps. I would look at it from from a ministry philosophy standpoint and strategy standpoint, say that is not good. But God used it. Why? Because as we heard in chapter two, He is the Lord of salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And it's not so much about the message or even the messenger. It's about him. And he's the one who prepares hearts even with poor messaging. Messaging that we would say, oh, I don't know how effective that is marketing-wise. But God is the one who changes hearts. Yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. And it worked. Here's the reality. Repent is a good message. It's a biblical message. Drop all the baggage with it. Whatever baggage you carry into this room about it, drop it because it's good. Here's why it's good. This is the good news. It may not sound like good news, but it is. Every human is a sinner. No exceptions except for Jesus. Therefore, every human needs to repent. But why don't we? What holds us back? I'll give you three things, certainly not exhaustive, but a few things to consider. First, we don't repent because we, some of us don't believe we're truly sinful. 
Some of us have bought the lie that we are fundamentally good and we have allowed the, the reality of our ability to be morally, outwardly morally good to make us think that our hearts are actually good. And what the Bible teaches us very clearly is that yes, we are capable of doing outwardly, morally, behavioralistically good things, but our hearts, our hearts are wicked. It's not a message that we love to hear, but it's actually helpful because in embracing that, that we actually are sinners, it helps us get to where we need to get. Spurgeon, summation of one of the most famous quotes of the great Baptist preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, where he said, if you have small sin, you have a small savior. But if you have big sin, meaning if you see your sin, if you see who you truly are apart from Christ, then who is Jesus to you? He's quite massive. If you have big sin, you have a big savior. We don't look at our sin and we don't recognize our sin so that we can wallow in it and feel sorry for ourselves and live in self-condemnation. We look at it so that we can see the immensity of Jesus and his grace and his love, his mercy, his goodness, his kindness, his compassion, because it's his kindness it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. But we don't see his kindness unless we first see our sin. Some of us don't repent because we don't truly believe we're sinful. Secondly, we don't think that either ourselves or other people are within the reach of repentance. Some of us think that we have sinned so deeply and so egregiously that it is beyond the reaches of God's grace. That his forgiveness has a limit that there are guardrails to the mercy of God and I'm off the cliff and he can't reach me, I'm beyond rescue. Some of us think that we are within rescue but others aren't, that they have reached a point where they are beyond the rescue of God. Lastly though, we don't repent quite simply because we don't trust God. We don't trust him. Tim Keller in his wonderful book, The Prodigal Prophet, Jonah and the Mystery of God's Mercy, he says it like this. He says, if you want to understand your own behavior, you must understand that all sin against God is grounded in a refusal to believe that God is more dedicated to our good and more aware of what that is than we are. We distrust God because we assume he is not truly for us that if we give him complete control, we will be miserable. Adam and Eve did not say, let's be evil. Let's ruin our own lives and everyone else's too. Rather, they thought, we just wanna be happy. But his commands don't look like they will give us the things that we need to thrive. We will have to take things into our own hands. We can't trust him. How true is that? I don't think any of us, very few of us, probably none of us sit around going, let's be evil. I wanna be evil today. No, no, we don't think that way. But what we do think is I wanna be happy. And I don't believe or trust that God has that same end in mind. His commands don't lead me there. Therefore, I'll have to take things into my own hands and matters into my own hands. I don't trust him, therefore, if I don't trust him, I don't repent.
I will not repent. So here's Jonah. Jonah, the prophet, the religious one, the one that you would expect to see true, genuine repentance. Still out there, right? Still questionable. Has he repented? We'll find out more in chapter four. I don't want to give spoilers, but I mean, you, you can read ahead. We're going to see next week. I, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't, I don't think there's been genuine repentance in this prophet's heart. But what we're going to see in this text, what we had just read to us, is that the most unlikely of people, the most wicked of people, the, the greatest of, sin, of sinners, repent. Let's walk through it. You had it read too. I won't read all of it again, but I think it's good to just kind of take it piece by piece and see what God has for us here. In verse one of chapter three, you may have caught it when McLean read it. It starts exactly like the book starts in chapter one, verse one. Chapter one, verse one says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. He said, go, go to that place, Nineveh. As we know from the story, Jonah doesn't go. He runs. He doesn't want these people to repent, and so he runs the opposite direction. So here we are, after all the events of one and two, Jonah is on dry land. He's covered in whale mucus. And God says, let's try this again. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah now obeys. He does what God tells him to do and he goes and he proclaims whether we think it's a good strategy or not, whether we think it's a great sermon or not, he proclaims what God gives him. It's the word of the Lord and where the word of the Lord goes, it's effective. It does not return void. And he goes and proclaims the message of the Lord in verse three, so Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh, he throws this in there again. He, he wants to understand, he's already said that great city, but listen to what he says again. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. Now, what does that mean? Right, there's debate over among scholars. Does this mean that it was such a massive city geographically that it took three days to get from one side to the other? Uh, what does it mean that it's an exceedingly great city? Now, it certainly probably at some level points to the population, the importance. It was the capital city of Assyria. It was, it was a big city. But what's really happening here in the original Hebrew language is God's making a point to Jonah. You might have a note like I do in my Bible where you have a little footnote and it just says in Hebrew, exceedingly great city is literally a great city to God. So was it a big city? Was it influential? Was it important? Yes, all of those things. But what God is saying here is he's saying, it's an important city to me. Implication, Jonah, I know it's not important to you, but it's important to me. Jonah, I know you hate these people and I know you don't wanna go give them this message because you don't want them to repent. You don't want them to receive mercy. You want them to receive judgment. But I'm looking at them and this city, this place, these people through a different lens. I see them as a worthy people of mercy and forgiveness. You see them as a wicked people worthy of judgment. 
Now, granted, for those who are unrepentant, for those who uh, don't believe upon Jesus, the one in whom only in whom salvation comes, yes, there's judgment, something that we don't like to talk about, but it's biblical, it's, it's true. There is judgment, but the heart of God that we see on display here in Jonah 3 and all throughout this book is the same heart of God expressed in 1 Peter, that he desires that no one perish, that all come to repentance. He sees a people to be objects of his mercy, not of his wrath. Jonah, can you get on board with that? These people who you have seen are beyond the reaches of my mercy. Can you be on board with my heart's desire? Can you love what the Lord loves? Can you hate what the Lord hates? Or is it your agenda, Jonah? Do you call the shots or do I, says the Lord. Now watch what happens next. Jonah, verse 4, began in to go into the city, going a day's journey, again, probably at some level alluding to the significance of the, of the size of the city. And he, he's walking through the streets and he's calling out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I wish I could preach sermons that bad and they have the result that Nineveh gets here. But it's the word of the Lord. Now, bad according to us, but it's God's word. This is what God told him to say. Now, what we will learn as we continue to read is that Jonah, as we have stated, he's, he's a reluctant prophet. So maybe he's, he's calling it out, but, but in a way that would be even at some level be overthrown. Yet 40 days you'll be overthrown. Oh, Lord, please don't let them repent. Yet 40 days, you'll be overthrown. That kind of messaging, perhaps, I don't know. But that word overthrown is interesting because, again, in the original language, it can mean one of two things. It can mean uh, judgment. Think Sodom and Gomorrah, that God would rain down fire if they don't repent. But it could also mean as we look at passages like 1 Kings 22 and Jeremiah 13, it can also mean transformation. So what if we've actually been reading that a little bit, if not wrongly, not completely? That part of what God is saying to Nineveh is that yet 40 days, I'm gonna transform you. Literally turn you upside down. I'm gonna turn this city upside down. What a wonderful message. Yes, it includes judgment, but it also includes transformation. In verse five, verse five, listen to this language. And the people of Nineveh believed God. <laughs> they believed it. To, to, to Jonah's shock and surprise, they believed it. But watch what happens next. Their belief leads to repentance, but how do we know? Because their repentance leads to action consistent with repentance. Their belief leads to repentance, but their repentance leads to action that is consistent with repentance. Because what do they do next? It says they believed, 
But then the rest of verse five, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. That's a summation verse. That's a, in, in grand total, this is what happened. They believed and then they, uh, they fasted. They put on sackcloth and ash, which is just an ancient way of saying we're repenting. It was active. It was visible. It was noticeable. It wasn't just lip service. Then verses six through 10 break down what that verse five is telling us. This is how it happened. The word, here's what happened. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. In other words, this is the, again, this is the king saying, uh, I'm repenting. I'm gonna show you that I'm repenting. And what is repentance? Well, it's taking off my robes in a sense to say, I'm not worthy. I'm not the true God. I have just heard from the true God. And so my robes are coming off. And in this practice of showing repentance, I'm gonna put on sackcloth and ash, not perfume and spices that were common for the day, uh, but ash to show lowliness, to just show unworthiness. Oh God, would you, would you be merciful? But it doesn't stop there. Verse seven, he issues a proclamation published throughout Nineveh by the decree, here it is, by the the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. The brother put sackcloth on the cows. Like this, this is the level, the extent of the repentance to say, this is not just gonna be a, a thing that we do half-heartedly. We're gonna wholeheartedly, all of us, every single person, every living thing is not gonna eat and we're gonna show repentance by lowering ourselves, posturing ourselves before this now that we know one true God, that he might be merciful with us. And then he says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Did you catch the word? Turn. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Verse nine, who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. They repented on a who knows. By the way, they don't even know the name of God. All these gods that we read in English, except for verse one, where you see Lord capitalized, which that wasn't the message to the Ninevites, that was the message to Jonah. The Lord, the message, the word of the Lord came again to Jonah. Every time the Ninevites are using that word God, it's not Yahweh. It's not the name of God that God gave to Israel. They don't know his name. Why? Because Jonah didn't tell them. So they don't know the name of this God and they don't know that he's actually going to forgive them and be merciful to them. They literally repent on a who knows. And it makes me think and ponder about where we are today in 2022 because our opportunity to repent is not on a who knows. It's on a we know. We know his name. We know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know his name is Yahweh. We know that he is I am, the great I am. 
We know that he is the wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace, the Almighty God, the Everlasting Father. We know who he is, but even more than that, we know that he came incarnate in the flesh, that he didn't consider equality with God something to be, to be grasped, but rather he humbled himself and he came as a servant in the likeness of man and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross, that the only person who's ever walked the face of the earth who didn't deserve the wrath of God, we know his name, his name is Jesus. Why? Because he's God in the flesh. And we know that he didn't just come and live a perfect life on our behalf, but that he died the death that we deserve. The very judgment that Jonah wanted the Ninevites to experience is the judgment that not just the Ninevites, but all of us deserve because of our sin. And the only way out from underneath that judgment is not through a wayward prophet named Jonah, but through an obedient and perfect king named Jesus. And that the only way in which we know this God that we don't get to repent on a who knows, but a we know is through the finished work of Jesus, that he didn't just die for our sin to pardon us, but he rose from the grave to declare over us that it's finished, that it's all done, that the penalty of sin, death itself has been defeated, that resurrection is not only Jesus's, but ours, and that we can know this God. Where Nineveh rep repented on a who knows, we get to rep re repent on a we know, because Jesus has come and he will come again. And so the question is, why aren't we repenting? If it was enough for Nineveh to repent on a who knows, how is a we know his name is Jesus not enough for us? What's holding us back? Why are we not putting on the proverbial sackcloth and ash, crying out before the Lord when he comes to us and says, yet 40 years, yet 80 years, yet 90 years, yet six months, whatever his time is left for you and judgment is coming. Repent. And here's why, because our hearts are still like Adam and Eve's. Our hearts are still like Jonah's. We're just like Adam and Eve in the garden. We say, I don't know that I can trust him because what I really want is my happiness and his commands take away from that. Or Jonah, our hearts are like Jonah, are they not? Where we say, your mercy is good for me. Thank you, Jesus, but not them. Not them. We have to be a people of true repentance. It's our first application very quickly. We must learn the difference between faults and true repentance and then walk in true repentance. The difference between false and true repentance, admittedly, uh, what I'm giving you here right at the end of the sermon is a whole nother sermon that I'll preach at some point. But I'll just whet your appetite for now. The very repentance that God longs to see happen. Remember, I told you in, in, in the first week of the series, I told you that Jonah is really a book for Israel. That they would see in the story of Jonah themselves, that they would see, hey, you're, you're Jonah. You've received the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the goodness of God, but it hasn't led you to repentance. 
You're a a reluctant, hard-hearted, half-hearted people. And then the very repentance that God longs to see happen with Israel and her kings is actually happening outside of Israel with your greatest enemies and their king. Why? This is God's message through Jonah to Israel and now therefore to the church. Because Here's why. Because your repentance is half-hearted. And the very ones that you think are not deserving of repentance is full-hearted. It's true. It's real. An example of false repentance would be in 1 Samuel 15 where Saul, the first king of Israel, was given a commandment from the Lord and he didn't He didn't do it. He did it halfway. And when the prophet Samuel is sent by God to him to call him out on it, he argues with Samuel and says, well, no, no, I did. I obeyed. And Samuel says, no, you didn't. He says, yeah, but I did. And he says, no, you didn't. He said, yeah, but I did. No, you didn't. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then finally, when Saul realizes, oh, yeah, I'm caught here. This is what he says, 1 Samuel 15, 30. He says, I have sinned yet. I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. You have to understand that false repentance is always rooted in self-protection rather than self-denial. It's always rooted in pride. False repentance is, I'm sorry, forgive me, I have sinned, yet. I'm sorry, forgive me, I have sinned, but... It's not repentance, it's false repentance. Because what's at the heart of that repentant action is self. How can I protect me? If there's a way that I can repent and still keep what I want, that's what we'll go after. The problem is that's not true repentance. True repentance is not followed by but and yet, but just simply ends with, I am sorry, forgive me, I have sinned, oh God. Walking in true repentance is not, secondly, walking in true repentance is not a one-time occurrence, but a daily cadence, a daily cadence, listen, Repentance is not based on a decision made way back then. Walking with God in repentance is a daily reality. I want you to think of it like this. Back in the Civil War, once the war went on for longer than they anticipated, they began to have to recruit lots of men to join the cause, North and South, who weren't trained, just regular civilians, most of them farmers, wildly uneducated, illiterate. So much so that many of these men didn't know their left from their right. So when they were trying to teach them cadence to march, they couldn't get it right. And so they came up with an idea. Most of these men are farmers. They'll get this. They don't ask me the difference because I don't know. But they, they put straw on the left foot and hay on the right foot. Again, I don't know the difference in hay and straw. They, I, think, I thought they were the same. But for these farmers, they knew the difference to where now they would call out hay foot, straw foot, hay foot, straw foot, and they walked in sequence together. They kept in step with one another. 
Why, why would I tell you this? Because the walk of the Christian life, when someone asks you, are you walking with Jesus? If you're honest, just be honest. You go, what do you, what do you mean walking with Jesus? Well, it looks like this. Galatians tells us to walk in step with the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, to walk means that every single day we are walking in faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. Faith in what? Faith in the gospel. Faith in Jesus. He's the Savior. He's the one. I know that I'm forgiven. I know that I'm a, I'm a beloved child of God. I know that I've been declared righteous. I know that he is merciful and good and his kindness. All this, oh, oh, but his kindness leads me to repentance. So every day I do want to see my sin, not so that I can live in self-condemnation, but so that I can see it so that I can trust him more and be more amazed with him. And as I see him, he shows me my sin. And so I come over here and I see it again and I repent and I confess to others when I've hurt them and I confess to the Lord knowing that all sin is against him. And so as I repent, I turn back to the gospel and I go, you are awesome, God. My faith is growing in you because you cover all of that. And he shows me more sin. And every day is faith and repentance and faith and repentance. But a lot of us, a lot of us hop on one foot. A lot of us just live in sin and kill ourselves with self-condemnation and we just walk over here. Others of us say, yes, I love the gospel, I love the gospel, but we turn a blind eye when God tries to show us areas of sin in our life. Hayfoot, strawfoot, hayfoot, strawfoot, walking daily. Matthew, I'll close with this. Matthew 12, Jesus is speaking. He says this. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This is what I wrote this week in response to that verse. Perimeter, may we stand before the Lord on that day, not as ones condemned by God or by the men of Nineveh, but may we be a repentant people who have believed upon the true and greater Jonah, who went into the belly of the earth for us so that we may be the undeserving recipients of his astounding mercy, both now and forevermore. Father, would you, would you work in us such that we would be responsive to you with hearts of repentance, minds that have changed, hearts and minds that have turned from our sin to you. And may, and may we walk daily with you in faith and in repentance. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a song here that I want to just be reflective, a time to repent, a time to, to sing along with these words as Laura sings them, but also just, if you need it, just to let them, just look at them, read them, let them be sung over you as we repent together and ask God to give us clean hearts unto his glory. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.